You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. Hello again, everyone. This is Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I'm Doug Thorpe. And today, this episode, we are going to deal with mindset. And as many of you who follow me regularly know, I am a big fan of encouraging leaders to periodically and on a very regular basis evaluate your own mindset because things change, things shift, life changes, and we get consumed by various things. But uh, having the right mindset is going to do so much more to help you achieve the goals and objectives and strategies that you want to get into. My guest today is a lady named Elizabeth Lewis. She is a specialist in this area. So, Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Doug. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, glad to have you on board. Uh, Before we dive into the meat of the subject, Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about your background and your own journey, the experiences that have led you to where you are right now. Yeah, um, full transparency, I slightly hate talking about my my journey because people typically label and make judgments with the next thing I'm about to say, but my childhood sucked like many people. My brother tried killing me my whole entire childhood, and uh, by 26, I was diagnosed with complex PTSD and had gone in and out of therapy for various things from an eating disorder that should have killed me to just trying to figure out like, how do I break free from survival mode? And not to sound conceited, but no therapist could really tell me how to change. They just were more like, your story, oh my gosh, tell me more. You should see me every week. And I'm like, great, like, I don't want to talk about it. I want to change. And so long story short, um, I got kind of frustrated with my last therapist and uh, I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go get my own psychology degree. I'm going to figure this out on my own because like people just don't know. And so that's kind of how the cookie crumbled. I got my first master's degree in positive psychology with a socialty and coaching psychology, started um, becoming like a neurology, neurobiology, neuroscience, like freak and couldn't get enough. And I just used me as a guinea pig, never to go into this for a career, but it turned out I was talented or good at it. And my my professors gave me their overflow for their coaching practices. And then the rest kind of became history. And now I'm working on my second graduate degree to be a um, therapist. Uh, so I just, I love to learn. I love to study. And it seems like I have a way to just help people transform. And since I've gone through so much, I think it helps me um, just give them a little bit more empathy and just understanding. Because some of the stuff that we walk through, it's it's difficult. It takes time and we need that understanding. Right, right. And I, I appreciate you for being really transparent on that. You know, it, um, and, and that's actually why I like leading off every show with asking my guests to kind of share a little bit about their background because we all have something. Uh, an old uh, pastor friend of mine used to say, There's a story in every pew. And uh, uh, I, I, I like that. And it, it is a, um, it is a reality. And so, I applaud you for the commitment to making the change and finding answers and and doing things. And and I know there's going to be people that are listening right now that didn't particularly have a challenging, you know, childhood or anything. They 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 grew up in a fairly, I guess, what you could call normal, whatever that is, uh, home setting. But you know, it, it, the reality is we all accumulate 
thoughts and opinions about the world around us and how we're doing in it. And it does set up that mindset that may or may not be effective for the business you want to run. Yeah. So um, let's just maybe start and, and talk a little bit about that idea of mindset. So from your view, where where does mindset fit into the success equation for someone who wants to run a business? I think it I think it is the equation. I mean, you can't do it. Everything runs through your your brain and your mind, two different things, right? We kind of talk about them interchangeably, but they are two different things. And depending on how you're viewing yourself in relation to the world and your worthiness, that's going to change how you see certain things or really your own belief in yourself. Like if you don't see yourself as worthy, you're going to have a harder time running a business because you have to have self-confidence. But if your self-esteem and your self-worth is shot, you're not going to have great self-confidence at the end of the day to the degree you would if you had that self-worthiness, self-worthiness, can't talk, and self-esteem. So I think it's yeah. everything. Yeah. I uh, I think when we were in the green room teeing up to come online here, we were talking about the idea that uh, so many times people dive into business, and, and this is true in the small business world, the mid-cap companies, and all the way up to large corporate, you, um, you kind of get in the trenches and you start thinking about things like strategy and strategic planning and budgeting and forecasting and all the nuts and bolts of running the business. But if, as, as we said, if you don't have the right mindset, all that kind of immediately goes out the window. Yeah. Yeah, it, it does. And I don't know if this is like a duh comment, but one of like my biggest, like, oh my gosh, moments when I started in business coaching and executive coaching is I thought business was really more tangible than it actually is at the end of the day. There's not these like clear cut strategies. So if you don't have a healthy psychology and um, inter and intrapersonal relationship, then it's going to be difficult to implement that strategy because strategy is business is trial and error. And what worked for one company isn't going to work for another company necessarily. And so you you have to be able to listen well and be able to pivot and all of these other psychometrics that help us succeed in business. If they're low, you're going to have problems. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I may be jumping too far ahead here, but um, it's on top of my mind um, today, right before we started recording, I actually had a, a coaching appointment and the topic on the on the table was this new modern buzzword emotional intelligence you know then and, and uh this happened to be a a download session reviewing someone's survey they had done on emotional intelligence mm -hmm. um what what do you do in that realm of of trying to talk or address emotional intelligence with the leaders that you work for um, well, one thing I like to do is I run them through a performance development assessment, which gives me like an x-ray of their of their mind, you could say. So it scores them in 23 psychometrics that we then compare to their job description. So personality traits and psychometrics, I'll use a little interchangeably here. And then from there, we just look at the, the scoring and we work individually on each one that's low to increase it. And what's really nice about this is it allows my client to see exactly what's hindering them to a degree. I mean, all of this, you got to hold a little bit loosely, right? We can't make it, but so, so simplified. 
And then, you know, through being intentional of, of either giving them education or the awareness and helping them grow it, all the other psychometrics typically go up or go down, depending on what we need to do. And that allows for a lot of change. I mean, emotional intelligence really requires being self-aware and stop being so addicted to yourself. Like if you're stressed all the time, there's two things that I know about you. Most likely you've never lived in a calm environment, especially as a child. And number two, you're a little addicted to yourself because when you're stressed, you're only thinking about yourself. And so it's learning how to shift and kind of decrease some of those narcissistic tendencies to really, you know, humility. Like it's like we've lost humility in the world. You have to humble yourself. You have to like grow up. You know what? People project all the time. And typically what pisses you off in someone else is what you do to other people. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's that's uh, <clears throat> that's one of the very basic tenets of psychology that I've always believed in. You know, the very thing you want to point out in others is usually a really bad habit you've got. So, um, you know, on on the topic of emotional intelligence, what I've come to try to tell my clients is they need to understand that number one, just because it's highly popular right now. There's a lot of teaching and coaching around it. It is just, in in my humble opinion, it is just one of many tools you can put in your leadership tool bag. Agreed. If you take Love an that. assessment and you come out incredibly low on emotional intelligence, that doesn't mean you can't run a business or, or lead a team. Right. Um, it just means you might be missing some opportunity for a couple of notches up the scale on effectiveness and success. Um, so it, it is always a function of investing in the time and energy to do the study and decide if there's opportunity to grow as a leader yeah. by somehow improving your emotional intelligence. I would completely agree. And I'm so happy you said that because I think too many people put too much emphasis on these assessments when all assessments are just a snapshot of where you are. I mean, the brain is malleable. You can change pretty much everything about yourself. It's, it, and depending on your age and your background, some of this might take time. But all of this is just, you know, it's part of the journey of becoming your best self. And as your awareness grows, you're going to find more. I mean, we're like onions. You're going to find more and more dilemmas at the end of the day. But, yeah. you know, these, these are just part of it. it it's not the whole story. And, yeah. and the other thing is you, you have to kind of see them as a collection. A lot of people are like, look at this one assessment. The Enneagram says I'm this. Well, great. All assessments tell you a little bit of something, but they don't ever tell you the full story. Yeah. And it's always dependent on your mood when you take it. I mean, you could take an assessment one day and then the next day take it and get a different result because your opinion about yourself is different. So you have to hold these a little bit looser than some people want to want to see them. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a very good point and a very valid. And and one thing you said just now in in the idea of your brain being malleable and 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 wanting to change. I, I if if I've observed anything in in my trips around the sun, I think the the one differentiating factor among leaders is whether or not they have a willingness to change. Yes, and that's the key. You can't help someone who doesn't want help. Right. And so I often, uh, if I meet someone who says they think they're interested in some coaching or some business advisory work, my first question is, is how willing are you to change? And do you call yourself coachable? Right. 
I know that's one reason I put my clients through a psychometric assessment, because sometimes I've run into people who say that they're willing (laughs) and they are coachable. Push comes to shove. No, they're not. And so, you know, especially when you have low trust and high assertiveness, you're just going to argue about everything. And if we put that low coachability in, we're just going to want to pull each other's hair out. Right, right, and it's going to be a fix-it job. And uh, I get those calls. I get those calls too from HR, and they say, "Well, the board says we need to talk to this executive, and you know, he needs to change his behavior." And it's like, "Yeah, but does he want to change?" You know, and yeah. don't know. You know, and if they don't, it's I, I consider it a fix-it job, and I don't do that. I'm not a body repair shop. <laughs> you can't. I mean, when someone has that degree of avoidant behaviorism, there's there's so much there. And you know, it's like narcissism. It's typically fueled by intense insecurity and fear. But you can't help someone unless they want it. Let me ask you related to this, and I know my questions are going to sound kind of random today, but my, 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 my mind is spinning uh, very fast. Um, talk about the classic smartest guy in the room syndrome i've i've run into clients who profess to be struggling with others around them who project as the smartest guy in the room you know and it's real off-putting it certainly impacts teamwork in a negative way Uh, any any thoughts on my my real question is if if I'm sitting here challenged by someone who always shows up that way, is what's the best way for me to kind of crack through that? Um, well, if I understand you correctly, it sounds like these are the types of individual who just are always arguing from a place that they have to be right. Yeah. And, you know, personally, it's a losing battle. This is where you just got to kind of humble yourself and move on. I mean, you can always call someone out individually, assuming like there's uh, authority there or, or there's respect. But when I'm in conversations and I realize what we're talking about isn't really what we're talking about, it's more of a power hunger. I personally just remove myself because there's there's no point at the end of the day. You want the power. So I'll just call it out and say, you know what? It sounds like we're just talking about who's right or wrong. And Right and wrong is not as simplified as people want it to be. I mean, perspective is perspective, and we can't really say what's right or wrong. So uh, the psychology of somebody who has to always be right, usually it's more of the choleric, dominant personality, kind of the a-hole personality, not to be inappropriate with language there. Um, And so usually it's high recognition, and it's coming from like deep insecurity, obviously, but it's also a value, right? Usually the people who want to be right, like they might see knowledge as power, or they might just see being like really loud as kind of the power aspect or what have you. And so like with me, when I have clients who are like this and they're, they truly are willing to, you know, want to be their best selves, I'll call them out and be like, you know what, it it sounds like we're talking about this, but really what I'm hearing is you just want to be right. How does that sit with you? And, you know, sometimes they'll push back, sometimes they won't. Um, But when I'm with like my boyfriend and he's, positioning from that point of view, I I very much just kind of label it, you know, this is where you have to start to be a little bit like a lawyer in in a litigation and see um, the eagle eye view of the conversation and not the words coming right at you in the in the eyesight. Most of what people say, especially when they have to be right, they're projecting. And so you can kind of use their stuff against you. But you I mean, some of this is like, you got to pick your battles, you you can't just be there constantly calling people out. 
usually the people that are the loudest are the most insecure. Yeah. Yeah. I've had some success with clients that have struggled with this by encouraging them to approach the person with a, a statement that basically says, you know, Hey, Bill, Hey, Sally, you know what? Every time we get together, you seem to need or want or show up as the smartest person in the room. And I, I want to just give you that. Yeah, exactly. I want to declare you are. Mm -hmm. We don't have to keep proving it. We don't have to keep demonstrating it. And there's an issue that I would like you to consider, and that is <clears throat> when you do that, it totally disrupts our ability to problem solve and find collaborative solutions. It, it just derails yeah. the, the team effort. And uh, I was dealing with a, an executive at one of the large oil and gas companies, and he was lamenting a challenge like that. So we went through that discussion and, and I said, any chance you can do that soon? And he laughed and he said, I got to take a four hour plane flight on the company jet with this guy. And so I guess I'll do it. We'll be captive and we'll see how it goes. And I said, well, okay, well, good luck with that. And next time I went in to see him, he said, uh, he said, you know what? He said, it was amazing. Yeah. He said, I, I said what you said almost word for word. And so-and-so just looked like I'd hit him with a brick. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh my God. I am so sorry. He said, I do not do this intentionally. I am yeah. just incredibly passionate about our work and the technology and everything we're doing. And I study and I'm well read and, you know, I, I know I do that. And I'm, is that really the way I come across to everybody? And my client said, yeah, it's pretty much it. <laughs> That's awesome that he was so um, open to hear that feedback um, because I know a handful of my clients, if I if I said it in that way, it would trigger them to be very defensive. Yeah. So that's and it sounds like this guy had a lot of respect for his executive as well, which which is very necessary if we're going to call someone out. But again, like when you can label yeah. somebody's behavior, yeah, it it just kind of it it helps the other person you know, kind of like look at their behaviorism in a different way, you know, because it, it, to your point, like, we don't always know what we're doing or how we're coming off right. until someone says it. Yeah. So to the point of being open, that that's so important then to recalibrate. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, as you start working with people, Elizabeth, what, uh, what are some of the entry points that, you know, are, are there common themes that people bring to you and say, uh, you know, I want help with? Oh, gosh, there's a lot of common themes, and it typically depends um, more on their personality and their temperament, what their like core frustration might be. One theme that I've kind of run into a lot lately, though, that, that really surprised me a few years ago when I started um, working with executives was the lack of self-confidence. That was really shocking to me. I do a lot of work with the self-discipline traits, so control, composure, autonomy, tough-mindedness, and self-confidence. That's typically really um, a little bit lower than I would expect. Another thing, too, is the optimism versus pessimism. You know, when you have when you've low trust, typically you're more pessimistic. And so how do we do that? How do we in, in, um, grow that? And then um, another one that I see a lot is um, getting out of fear. Like, so, like, and... and we're so future focused 
and past focused. But at the end of the day, life is in the present moment. And if you want a great future, well, then you're going to have to learn how to be in the present moment because that's where you make the decisions for your future. And, you know, I think a lot of people don't mean to, but they derail themselves because they they have their plan. They have their goal. They have how their life's going to look. They're in the future, but that's not how life happens. We're not, life isn't linear or product minded. And so I do deal with a lot of perfectionistic thinking and uh, recalibrating that and, and helping people hold the gray. You know, it's natural for humans to want to find a reason to why everything happens. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Reality is sometimes there's not a reason. Yeah. It happens. Business is all about solving complex problems as fast as you can create them. Become the best problem solver by leading others to greatness too. And the first step is going to DougThorpe.com. Doug Thorpe is known globally for coaching entrepreneurs and business leaders, improving their performance and the work output of everyone surrounding them. You can find health, wealth, and happiness by learning to lead others to health, wealth, and happiness. Go to DougThorpe.com now and order Doug's books or hire him to coach your managers. That's Doug, T-H-O-R-P-E.com. Yeah, you've touched on several areas, and I'm going to go back to the one about um, confidence and all. And I, I think it's popularly called the imposter syndrome. People get promoted into a job, or or even in the case of the entrepreneur, the business starts taking off and turning into an yeah. enterprise that now needs a whole different level of management leadership. And the person that was the founder just feels like an imposter trying to be that person. Yep. And, uh, you know, having that, suffering that imposter syndrome, what I, what I tell my clients, number one, it's way more common than you think. You're not alone. So common. And people that are rising through a career, especially in big corporate, at some point in time, you're, you're always going to have that. And you don't have to wait to be elected the CEO of a company to experience that. <laughs> it, it can happen at every other level up and down the chain. I think there's a lot of um, mothers and fathers who probably have it. So I don't even think it really even resonates to uh, the career. I will say a lot of times people have imposter syndrome when they're unclear about their job description and how it fits into the company's big picture. And when they're unclear of how their work fits into the company's big picture, I've seen a lot of imposter syndrome um, quickly clear up when they had, when, when the executives were communicating the company's mission or vision or key goals better, it typically resolves. A lot of people just sometimes get so afraid of like, what's going to make me get fired because that's so unclear. And so, you know, everything really falls down on communication. So if you are a company, like, are you valuing your employees? Are you letting them know how their work fits into the bigger picture and how they fit into the bigger picture? That's really important. Unfortunately, it seems like a lot of people don't speak up about um, how it all is going to make sense at the end of the day for what they're yeah. doing and why they're doing it. I had a client once that was um, promoted into a role. Uh, he had been with this organization for a while already, but he was promoted into a role and designated as the heir apparent to be a department head. Mm. And he was given 
this sort of shadow slash apprentice role to work with the outgoing department head for two years. And, and it, it was a two year window mm-hmm. and um, they worked together very well. And, you know, they figured out a dynamic and it, it, everything about that two year period was positive. Then the day came for the former guy to leave and the new guy to step in and he said he immediately got this wave of imposter syndrome. You know, now that he had the title and had this seat, he didn't feel like he had the the right stuff to make it work. And we we began working together and through things. And I I asked him. I said, "Well, other than so and so leaving, what what changed for you?" And he said, "Nothing really." And I said, "Then then why?" Why do you think this? You know, what are you, what are you thinking about all this? Yeah. It, it, I mean, it, it, you know, th- sometimes I think, I wish, I wish we could like recreate how school is in elementary and middle school, because I think if we could spend more time teaching kids how to take their thoughts captive, how like you're going to have weird thoughts, you're going to have doubtful thoughts, especially in life trans- transitions, right? When you, when you shift in any way, that's a lot of stress and change for the brain. And people forget like the smallest changes has, has tremendous impact on our neurology. And so sometimes it's just knowing like, okay, you're, you're in a new role lot of unknown there until you get your, your, your like sea legs, I guess. And so how can you give yourself grace? How can you accept the greatness? How can you just navigate the ambiguity, especially for your high end structure to calm yourself down? I mean, simply because you have a thought that you don't know what you're doing doesn't make it true. And I don't know about you, but the number one thing I've learned this year is nobody knows what they're doing. Everyone's figuring life out. So I think sometimes we act and most people who struggle with imposter syndrome to the degree that you were referring to typically have perfectionism <laughs> and they're really comparing themselves against an ideal that does not exist and is not possible. And they're being way too hard on themselves when it's like, whoa, calm down. Your 100% is the average person's like, I don't know, 400%. So like, right, let's right. reel it in and get some objective thinking and and kind of going back to emotional intelligence. Let's not be so emotional about it. Like, Emotions can very quickly make you um, not see things correctly as well. Yeah, yeah, I like that, and and I do think this this perfectionism, you know, may well come down. And I'm not a psychologist by any means, but just speaking of life observation, both in my own life and everybody around me, you know, the 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 function of how we were impacted in in our schooling and and. Uh, upbringing has a whole lot to do with whether or not we end up having this drive to want to be perfect. And the biggest thing that I see in clients or with clients is is the idea that those who suffer with making decisions and procrastination are inevitably perfectionists. Yeah, they can be for sure. They, they um, because it can't be perfect, they just won't do it at all. And mm-hmm. it, uh, you know, the popular phrase is, perfect is the enemy of good. Mm-hmm. So if you need to make a decision about your business, you you need to not seek the perfect answer, but rather, you know, find something good and move on. Yeah, it's true. Um, you know, perfectionism really re- stems from rejection to some degree or performance love. So typically mom or dad made you like dance to get love, you could say. 
Um, or mom and dad had it and you were taught it from just observing mom and dad doing it. But the cool part is, is just because you have it doesn't mean you have to have it for the rest of your life. Like right. again, if you're willing to do the hard work up front, you can change and get free from perfectionism quite quickly. But again, are you going to be willing, intentional and put in the effort? Because I guess I'm a little surprised about how many lazy people there are in the world and like the whole, just give me medicine. I'm like, well, if you read the study on medicine, it doesn't do what you think it does, quite frankly. It, I mean, to a degree it does for some people and there's we're getting more advanced in, in neuroscience research to see when, when and where the, the medicine would necessarily work for the individual. But I mean, like literally thinking changes your neurology. So like, what would happen if you just started to think differently and challenge yourself to maintain that way of thinking, which is hard to have accountability, have people to help you. But I, I just, you know, I, I just believe if you can imagine it, you can do it. It might take work, it might be hard, might be longer than your goals are, but you can do it. I've, I've seen people do the impossible. You can make it possible if you believe. Speaking of the brain science on that, I'd, I'd like to get your opinion. I've, I've read some studies that talk about the way we help change behavior is to um, find new thinking paths. And the simple, very specific example is whichever hand you use to brush your teeth in the morning, try doing it with the other hand for a while. And it's going to be next to impossible at, at first, and then pretty soon it's going to get better. And uh, the the brain science, as I understand it, says that you create um, new pathway, neural pathways in your brain when you when you invoke a new thought or a new idea. And until you repeat that, those synapses in the brain aren't firing together with a hardwire. They're just a it's a gap in space and. But if they keep firing together and they're called on to do that, do so, then your brain actually hardwires that connection. Yeah, it's that's, that's true. And that's when it becomes second nature, like kind of like driving a car, and you right. you know you go to the store and you go, "How did I get here?" I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's neuroplasticity at its finest, right? Large word for a very simple process. Even learning something, learning something new, is is um, creating new neural connections. Nothing's really hardwired, though. You get like default um, connections and network, but we can constantly change. And the brain is like the ideal organization. You know, it's it's like I wish some of these the people and companies. Would, would be a little bit more of a team player like brains because, you know, every part of our brain has a particular um, key or focus that it's going to do. But it's not like, you know, super jerk-like in the fact of it's only going to stay in that area, right? It will pick up and do everything. Like it'll start to, to take on responsibilities that are not its primary functioning. That's the coolest part about the brain to me in, in that aspect. But yeah, I mean, neuroplasticity comes down to um, attention, effort, and repetition. You have to learn. You know, I like to give people the mask example, which has been a little, um, uh, some people get mad at me for it. I'm not saying like the mask is good or the mask is bad. I'm just using it as an example because we've all kind of lived through COVID-19 at this point. And, you know, when they were teaching us to always wear the mask, what did they do? They put it on billboards. They put it on radio stations. They put it on newses. They put it on um, 
they constantly exposed you to it and you constantly learned and in time it became, you know, second nature to a degree, but we know that neurons that fire together, wire together. That's the power of associations and creating stories for memory. I mean, our brain is, is pretty amazing at the end of the day, but if you want to change your habits, if you want to change your neurology, the best way to do that is making really small changes in your thinking, in your environment, in your habits and in your behavior. And in time, they'll grow to larger ones. So it is, it is all obtainable, but we got to stay in the, in the moment because it's super easy to get overwhelmed with. So I I may be delving way too far into the psychology of of things, but in in terms of healthy mindset, uh, you know, there's, there's also a lot of teaching about, you know, be careful who your friends are, you know, you're the circle of people that you associate with have such a heavy impact on how you think, how you believe, what you do. And if you're wanting to make a change, sometimes you got to think about changing people. I I would say always, you know, this is big with addiction. You know, if you, if you are are an addict and you're trying to get recover, one of the first things they say is be mindful of your, your friend groups, because the way the brain works with memory is the brain can um, get get cues from your environment. That's why, you know, when someone who's a drug addict, you typically can't put them back in the environment that they were in using, which usually includes their friends, because those environmental um, triggers, I guess we could call them, cues the brain to say, hey, you need to go and get whatever. Because when you're addicted to something, the brain um, reorganizes itself to say, you need that substance in order to survive. That's why the cravings become so difficult to kind of ignore because your brain is saying, we are not going to survive unless we get this. So changing your environment is very, very important. Well, again, I I know my questions today have probably been very random, so I'm going to ask the audience to bear with me, but I I just, I'm fascinated by this stuff and and, and find, um, and and I am reflecting on a lot of the popular discussions I'm having with clients. Let me ask you one last thing. You you mentioned the mass situation and COVID. There's um, a lot of talk and study that is being done post-COVID in the work world about the mindset shifts that employees have made. So now leaders of businesses are finding whole new challenges with their workforce. Yeah, And I've read articles where some have actually declared it an individual kind of PTSD that people suffered because at some stage in the whole COVID scare, we all dealt with our own sense of mortality, you know, because, you know, the first 90 days, nobody knew what COVID was. It sounded like the whole world was going to die. And, you know, what are we going to do about that? And of course, you know, I don't want to get into the discussion about what the media did or didn't do on all that. But the reality was people took huge emotional hits trying to figure out what life needed to be about. Yeah. No. Um, yes. Is there something particular you want me to speak to on that? Well, I, I, I'm, I guess I, that was a long-winded buildup to say, are you seeing or have you in your work, are you seeing any focus on this idea of the new mindset that employees have going back to work after being released from the COVID lockdown? One of the things that I've ran into with some of the companies that I've worked with, and it's been more of the like blue collar companies where I've seen a lot of this is uh, employee retention. 
because again, not to go political, but when America just kind of gave out money to help people because no one knew really what was happening, it changed our, um, it changed a handful of people's work ethic. That was already, we could maybe argue was kind of crap in the beginning and now it's like super crap. Um, and you know, with the increase of a job needing to pay all your bills and the expectation of what some of these employees have, that's been really challenging. I work mainly in the Southeast and ironically, the Southeast did not shut down to the degree as like the North and the West coast did. So we weren't really as impacted. And, and what I'm about to say might, um, make people not really love me, which is totally fine. But at the end of the day, like part of life is hard, toughen up buttercup. We have a very fragile society in today's world. Um, you can die at any point, at any second. Um, and, and I have to, I guess, share my bias that, you know, my immune system was crap uh, after dealing with constant stress. Obviously, stress will destroy your immune system. Uh, when I lived with my my brother and when he tried to kill me and all that stuff. And so when I was getting healed and, um, and recovering from complex PTSD and rewiring my brain, I, had, I was told to live in a bubble. I kid you not, because I had no immune system. I actually had an autoimmune disease. I ended up walking out of it. I don't have it anymore. I get tested every year to make sure. Um, and so if you're going to live in fear, understand that like, that's the worst thing you could do for your, for your psychology, for your health, for your body, for your spirit. Um, I would encourage you to get a spiritual source that's bigger than you so that you can put your trust in something that's greater than you because humans need hope. We need hope. We need optimism. One of the reasons why so many people became suicidal in COVID and our suicide rates increased was the lack of hope was the lack of optimism, was the lack of social interaction. Um, I used to work in the media. It's a business. They're going to lie to you, like it or don't like it. It's a perspective at the end of the day. You're not guaranteed to live. <laughs> no one's making it out of life alive in the first place. Yeah, one so, out of us are going to die. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, part of me is just kind of like, tough <clears throat> up, buttercup, get over it, make your peace, and, and live your life, be in the present. It's, no one's, nothing's a guarantee. Yeah, yeah. All good. Thank you, Elizabeth. Uh, we're going to wrap this up. And uh, again, I just want to say thanks so much for, for joining me. Uh, what uh, is the best way that people could reach out and get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more? Yeah, so you can go to my website, elizabethlewis.com. Um, you can also email me at elizabeth.elizabethlewis.com. I'm pretty big on LinkedIn. Um, I don't really care about the other social medias. I'm going to be honest. It's just, just so overwhelming to me social media, but my website is probably the best place. Great. Well, we will have all that in the show notes, folks. And one last time, thanks, Elizabeth, for sharing with us. Appreciate you your me. your uh, candor and, and straightforward ideas. Folks, we uh, do have a video version of this over on YouTube, a channel by the same name, Leadership Powered by Common Sense. If you uh, haven't checked it out, please go over there and subscribe and hit the bell and give us a, a thumbs up, thumbs down. Let us know how we're doing and what we're doing. We um, uh, have an open invitation. If you're a listener and have an idea of a topic you'd like us to hit on, let me know that. You can reach me on any of my social links. But also, if you or someone you know wants to be a guest, uh, let me know that. We're always uh, open and uh, keeping the schedule alive. So for now, we're going to sign off, say goodbye, and thank you very much. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. 
If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.